You've seen it in nearly every after-school special that's ever been written. It is classic. It's quintessential. It's the papier-mâché volcano experiment. And that is one of the experiences that we think about a lot when it comes to learning science when you're a kid. But what really inspired you to go a little bit further into science if you did? There probably had to be some sort of support structure, maybe a mentor, or someone who you really looked up to that really got you from interested in quote-unquote blowing things up all the way to wanting to become a scientist. My name is Louis Colavertolo, and I am a food science PhD student at the University of Guelph. Trying my best over here, honestly, guys. And I like to talk to other people who were in graduate school, currently in graduate school, or a little bit past it, about what they do in science and why it is interesting and why anyone, myself included, should care. And this week we're going to highlight that should care sort of aspect of it. Because not everyone really loves science growing up, but people like Cagney Kumi are amazing community resources to get people into science. She is one of the co-founders of Nerd Squad, which is a non-for-profit group that works out of the United States that tries to get more STEM education and inspire new bright minds, specifically in women and women of color, in their early years of education. Cagney has a lot to say about what it means to run a non-for-profit and why what she's doing is so ridiculously important. But Cagney isn't toting a papier-mâché volcano from room to room. She's creating some new experiments that are really super interesting and engaging to kids in this current year. So put away your volcanoes, your baking soda, and your vinegar, and listen up, because Cagney is going to give us the details of Nerd Squad and everything that she does in order to make future scientists. Hi, Cagney. How are you doing today? I'm good. How about yourself? I am doing all right over here. Can you do us a quick favor and run us through your educational history? Um, I have a bachelor's in biology from Virginia State University. And then I went to community college and got an associate's degree in biotechnology. And from there, I went and got my master's and my PhD from the University of Kentucky in molecular biology. And now you are up in Vermont, aren't you? Yes, doing a postdoc. Oh, my God. It sounds like you've been in this system for a very long time. <sighs> yes, longer than <laughs> sometimes I even realize. That sigh means so much. I think like anyone who, who is in this system right now felt that sigh like deeply chilling their bones. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I today, we're not really going to talk about what you study. I imagine it's fascinating, blah, 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 whatever. What we're going to talk about today is about your work in scientific outreach. So you run a program. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, so it's a STEM nonprofit. It's called Nerd Squad. And basically, it's a group of black and brown scientists who mentor high school and middle school girls of color. And then those girls of color, we come together and we design and develop this culturally relevant curriculum. And then those girls of color, they go out into the community and they become the mentors and the experts and they do and they facilitate these activities to the community. So yeah, it's like so a reaction of science. 
I left. love it. Oh my god, a chain reaction of science. That that's beautiful that it is. So I have so many questions and I want to know the ins and the outs of your program because I love scientific outreach. I think it is one of the best things that we can do uh, for the future generation. So first of all, where did you come up with this idea? Um, so I gotta I gotta say that like in most spaces I'm the only one. And, you know, I live in Kentucky. So when like living in Kentucky, I thought was just because I'm in Kentucky and I go to the University of Kentucky in this space, I may be the only one. But like as I went out into the world and experienced the world, I I realized that I'm the only one in this space. But then there's another girl that looks like me, the only one in this space. And why are we the only ones? Why aren't there more girls of color in STEM? Why aren't they thriving? And so when I started to ask this question, I started to get answers. And a lot of the answers were like, science is boring. People of color really aren't interested in STEM. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. So I'm going to my own community and I'm like, well, why don't y'all like science? What is it? They're like, it's boring. It's boring. And I'm like, first of all, I'm like the ultimate nerd. So for someone to tell me that science is boring, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, are you crazy? Being a scientist is like being a magician, but then you get to figure out how it all works. Like, it's like the most coolest thing ever. What are you talking about? And they're like, no, no. So I started going to these community centers and I was like, can I come here? Can I do activities for the little kids? And we can call it Science Tuesdays. And so on Science Tuesdays, I would come, but I was designing my activities so that all of my materials cost less than $20. And they were re- and they were um, something that students could readily get inside their homes. And so we would do the activities and then my extras, I would bring baggies and I would send the extra activity home the extra materials home so that the kids could do it with their families and like when I started I had maybe 10 kids but within a month I had like 45 and they were just coming and I was like well why don't y'all like science at school and they're like this nothing like the science you do here it's boring it's boring and I'm like I gotta see this for myself so I went to this elementary school and I asked the principal if I could come and sit in on a science class And I went and I sat in on the science class for like three days. And at the end of the three days, I was like, oh my God, this science they do here is boring. (laughs) This is a science. And like when I would talk to the teachers, they would say, we don't have a lot of money. We can't afford a lot of materials. We can't do these super fancy experiments. And I'm like, but science is like, the smallest little thing. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be really expensive to blow your mind and to make you. So I started thinking about ways that we could do inexpensive experiments inside of a classroom to couple with the with the teacher's curriculum and they would do an activity and I mean they would do a lesson and I would come in with an activity and every time I would come in it would cost about two dollars per child to do the activity and I would like and my point was to show them like this is easy. There are ways because science is just, it's not really right or wrong. It's about actually doing something, like doing it. You think you know, then you do things to try to figure out if what you think you know is right. And so kids have ideas, I give them materials. You, what, what do you wanna try to do? All right, fine. Let's see if Miss CC can go and beg across the, across the city for all the materials to make your idea come, come to life. 
And and so I started going into classrooms and I would teach teachers how to take a classroom and turn a classroom into a place of critical thinking. And everybody learns. It doesn't really matter what age or what level you are in learning when it's like open and imagination is what it's all about. Then you create an environment where everybody wants to engage and everybody can take a little piece away and to add and to make this like better to make it more influential we bring in the high school kids and the high school kids are like the same age or they just left the places of the kids that they mentor so these kids are looking like oh my god i can be like you when i grow up i'm interested in science i never even thought about it that way and then when we do activities we always do activities that they can relate to and we use not just good science but we also use careers that they can like grasp onto like last year, our like overarching science was biochemistry. But for the kids, what we did was we turned them into cosmetic chemists because what middle school girl doesn't know about makeup? And so for the first semester, they learned all of these chemical reactions and all of these recipes to make different kind of makeups. And then in the second semester, they had to design their own cosmetic line and they had to come up with their own recipe. They had to design a label. They had to come up with a commercial. And then at the end of the semester, they have an open night where families can come and they can buy their products. But... The catch is the students have to be able to explain the science. So if you go up to their booth, they can't tell you why they added these chemicals to make this product. You can't buy the product. That is so fascinating. Oh, my God. That This is I'm so excited to, to talk about this because this is the most beautiful outreach thing like I've heard of in a very long time. <laughs> uh, there's like four things that I thought were super cool from all of them. And I, I want to go through all of them. Uh, first, let's talk about the uh, misrepresentation of diversity in the STEM fields. Um, so we look at it right now and STEM is primarily male and is primarily white. Uh, I am a white male and I am in STEM. Um, so when it comes to misrepresentation on the show previously, we talked to a woman, uh, in STEM who talked about the disparity between, uh, women who get all the way to the faculty stage versus women who actually get to the tenure stage. Can you give us a little uh, information, some background on color in the STEM fields? So um, usually women of color, we graduate at a higher rate when it comes to undergraduates. We graduate, we usually are at a higher rate, in, at least in our own communities at pursuing PhDs. But I just graduated from a university where there were no women of color in any of our science departments. That's crazy. In 2020. Yeah, right. In like such a modern time. This is not, you know, a problem from the 90s anymore. This is this is a modern time. And then it's like we're when you do find you never really find a group. You find a few here, a few there, because we're just not ever really given those opportunities. But I think like at least in my community, it's even worse is because when you're in elementary and middle and high school, you're not even getting exposed to science and STEM in a way that would make you dream about growing up and being a scientist someday. A lot of times when you think about history, they don't even call scientists scientists. They call them in inventors when they're black. They don't say the scientist. It's even about how they label and how they use words and how they describe. So if you're a kid and you're growing up and you're thinking about what you want to do in your future, if you've never even, no one's ever drawn a straight line to something, how do you know that you could actually be a part of that line? 
How do you know that that's that that's something you're capable of? You're you're kind of blowing my mind over here. I I big thing that just stuck out is you said uh, you don't hear about black scientists being called uh, scientists. You hear them as inventors, and uh, when you think about it, someone like uh, George Washington Carver, he was a scientist. But we always Madam know him C.J. As... Walker. She was a scientist. Yes. They call her an entrepreneur, not a biotechnician, because really that's biotechnology at its earliest and at its finest. And she built a career out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so C.J. Walker, uh, to clarify for anyone listening that doesn't know, which is a fascinating story, is uh, a woman who pioneered hair products for uh, black and brown communities. And she was a chemist. That's what she was. She made formulas. She didn't just like, oh, yeah, and I'm going to set up a business and sell a lot of money. This was a, a, a pioneer in cosmetic science. And, and, and I, to this day, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, she's an they inventor. They an entrepreneur. Oh, they my God. They never, ever say that she's a scientist. Wow. This is like the first time I'm even thinking about it. And I like I watched that documentary on, on Netflix or, or whatever it was. It's not a documentary. I guess it was more like a portrayal or biopic or whatever yeah biopic right so i watched that and even the entire thing i was like oh now i'm realizing she was a scientist so it starts so early like i do grasp the bigger picture of like my current reality of being like a minority in stem but like it's easier for me to like look back and just see all the steps see how i never even seen a black scientist till i got to graduate school you know in my community, when I tell people I'm a scientist, they're like, what? How did you come across that career? Like, I just stumbled into it. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like I looked under a rock. Oh, scientists, because <laughs> it's just not fathomable. You can't tell a student that they can, like, shoot for the stars if all they ever see is a cloudy day. Absolutely. They need a role model. And it sounds like you are not only being a role model, but you're building like an army of role models. So that's the next thing that I wanted to talk about is this uh, this sort of, as you mentioned, it train reaction. Right. You are training people that get excited to train people to train people. It's sort of like multi-level marketing, like you're trying to sell me some, you know, well, cosmetics, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just trying to get my team of 10 people teach your team of 10 people. So how does this uh, chain reaction play out in uh, the communities? So like me, Kayla, Kayla's like the current director of Nerd Squad since mm -hmm. I moved to Dartmouth and other scientists we host these high school and middle school girls who are interested in STEM. We meet bi-weekly. We like expose them to different careers. We take them on field trips. We do all of these things in the background to nurture their interests. But on the forefront, we come together and we design and develop curriculum. So me and Kayla might have an idea and we'll teach it to them and they'll take what they learn from us and they'll go back and they'll think about how they would teach it. And then they come back and teach it to us. And we kind of have a meeting of the minds like, well, why did you take that out? Well, we really didn't think that was relevant. You lost me when you started talking here too much. So we didn't really want to teach that part. And then they go out into the community and they become the leaders and they become the experts and then they facilitate the activities and they teach them to middle school and elementary schools and they go to schools and they provide curriculum at schools they go to after school programs they go to summer programs and they're the leaders and so they're the ones that get to actually it's like a bridge we're mentoring them and 
needing their interest and then they go out into the community and they mentor the little girls and they 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 inspire them and then those little girls tell us we want to grow up and be on the nerd squad we're going to be where they are we can't wait till we get to high school and so it's just like a chain reaction and building inside of our community yeah so what what gets me that i thought was super interesting that you said is that uh, you you teach these high school girls and then they tell you what they liked and what they didn't like out of it because that that feedback is super important i think a lot of times with the education system that feedback doesn't happen exactly and they're the ones that really know right they're the ones that sit in a classroom every day if we want to know how impactful something was who else to ask than the ones who are getting taught yeah absolutely so then you get these uh girls you get them interested in high school is there any way that you're recruiting them that's special like how do you how do you get someone to even think about wanting to join uh the nerd squad well there's really not a lot of other things for girls who are nerdy in my city first of all um i'm a black scientist and i'm probably the only one most people i, I know know <laughs> and then on top of that we our mayor, he has a program like a summer employment program where he pays the salary of high schoolers and then they can go and work for companies. And so we um, we partner with that program and then we're able to get our baseline girls from there. And then once they once they join the nurse squad, they join from word of mouth and other things, too. But once they join, a lot of times they just stay on. So are you paying these girls summer salaries? The mayor, the mayor of our city pays their summer salaries. So they get paid to be on Nerd Squad. Oh yes, my so. God. I, I didn't think I could fall in love with it more, but that <laughs> is so amazing. Because I think one of the things that really needs to be understood is that the work that you're doing, if you are like someone who is directing the Nerd Squad or in the Nerd Squad is valuable work and it should be compensated. And then all of the activities they do, any field trips or any of that, all of that stuff is free. So you don't pay to get services from the Nerd Squad. If we come to a school or we partner with a community center, all of the work that we do in the community is free. Oh, that is, yeah, so that's great, right? So you can, you still go to the schools and you can still do that. Um, but of course, you're a nonprofit, so it's not like you're, you know, trying to appease the investors or anything or or make, you know, a, a fistful of cash out of this kind of stuff. So then that is a beautiful segue, without even planning it, uh, into the idea that I think is another very fundamental aspect of this is the low-cost aspect of what you're doing. Uh, you mentioned this at the very beginning. You said uh, you could do it at the cost of $2 per student, or you were saying something that could be done with under $20. Uh, could you tell us why cost is so important? Well, cost is a barrier, right? If most of the schools I served are students who live in poverty or latchkey kids or single parent mothers, you don't wanna get them excited about something and they wanna go home and it's like out of their economic reach to actually pursue the activity or do the work. And then if I'm servicing schools, a lot of schools in my community don't have a lot of money. So I can't say to them, I'm gonna come and do this activity and teach you how to do it if it costs $10 a kid. Where are they going to get $10 a kid? Yeah. To fundraise, I can write a grant and fundraise for $2 a kid for a classroom. Two or three classrooms. It's not going to cost me more than $1,000 to service a whole fourth grade. 
that that's a really big deal. So uh, could you give us some example of what some $2 per kid experiments are? Um, let me see. They learn about respiration by making sauerkraut with cabbage and vinegar and a mason jar. Okay, yep, that's a big one. Respiration, it's uh, the process of making oxygen and, and carbon dioxide. Love it. Anything else? Um, they can do any kind of volcano with a lemon and bacon mm. soda. Hmm. Gotta love the volcano. That is if one of my favorites. If you pH, all you need is a red cabbage and water. Yep, yep. I'm a food scientist. That's lo- that's my game over there is the red cabbage game. You know, like these are just simple, easy experiments, but they actually, you can make a cloud in a jar with a match in a jar. Okay, what's a cloud in a jar? That sounds cool. Like a, li- a real life cloud. Like how you have a cloud in the sky, you can make uh-huh. a cloud in a jar with a match, a, li- a bottle top, and a, and a piece of ice. Oh my God, I want to know more about this. I'll, I'll do my own research later. This sounds cool. I, I probably like tonight, like, yeah, I have like a grant I should be writing, but tonight I'm probably going to make a cloud in a jar because that sounds really cool. Yeah, and that costs less than $3. Deal. So, okay, you you have a lot of these uh, sort of affordable experiments uh, to be done uh, in classrooms, but you also mentioned finding things that people can do back at home. So when they do activities or experiments, basically whatever the materials that we have left over. So if we did pH and we had red cabbage juice, I fill little conical tubes with the red cabbage juice and let the kids take the red cabbage juice home. There's a whole experiment. They can go through their whole house. Mama, let's see what the pH of soda is. Let's see what the pH of water is. What's the pH of soap? And they've already been working with these materials in the classroom. So they already know what things to look for. And and then they can be experts about stuff that they already know about. I bet you don't know what the pH of this is. I bet you don't know what the pH of that is. And they can just go through. And it's just red cabbage juice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The red cabbage juice is a pH indicator. It's it's a it's a wonderful and easy to do experiment. So you send them home with the materials to continue their learning at home. And that takes learning outside of the physical classroom. And I think that that is a big part of uh, outreach just in general. I agree. I try to make sure that even when we do like big projects with kids, we always try to have a community event at the end of the school year or the end of the program so that the kids can show the families and the parents and they can be the experts and talk about the science that they learned throughout the year. Cause they're always going to be projects and they're always going to have like some big end. And so we always want the kids to be able to go back and be like, let me show you what I learned. This is what I did this year and take ownership of their science and feel confident about it. And who better to build your confidence than the people that's going to cheer for you no matter what your family. (laughs) Yeah, they don't have a choice. They have to support you. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So the community events, is it usually just the parents or do you get like people outside of the education system coming? People in the neighborhood come, the parents come. People who go to school with me come, like everybody comes. They're, the students never lack enough people to show off to. Wow, that's amazing. Like I, I would have thought like, ah, it might be tough to get people to come, but but you're engaging the community really well. And we're gonna, and they know we're gonna feed them. Oh yeah, well, hey, hey, you know, I come when there's free food for the most part. So we always make sure we have food and we always do it at a time where we're making sure that the parents had a chance to get off work and they're mm-hmm. not there. So it won't be a four o'clock event. It'll be a five thirty event. 
like yeah. giving the parents enough time so they can come home and get themselves settled in and get then they can come and those kind of things being understanding the barriers of the community that we serve yeah there's a big accessibility issue um, because like a lot of people just can't take off at 3 p.m. to do some event that ends after classes ends. You have to be able to work with the community. Or if you come later, like 530, and then you have kids that you're going to have to go home and feed. If we don't feed you, now you have a whole new task to do when you get home. But instead, we're going to make sure that we ask for your time. We're going to make sure that everybody in your family who came leaves with a full belly. So now you don't have that stress to go home and worry about what you're going to feed these kids. It's already 7 o'clock. It's almost dark. Those are stresses that, you know, parents don't always need right now. Yeah, right. And if you want to engage the community in something that, you know, might not be the most popular thing, you know, I guess science education, uh, you have to be willing to overcome a lot of barriers to make it as accessible as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I absolutely love all of this. One, uh, mainly because I like going to events where I get fed because that's like, that's a big one. I mean, come on, let's be serious. Uh, but also this outreach that you do is important. One for the students, two for the community. But I think the thing that brings it all together, that is that fourth topic that I wanted to talk about was the applicability of it. The fact that you are getting these kids to do something that's interesting. And I want to know all about the cosmetics. I want to know everything because that's so cool. I have never even heard of that as an idea. So they, they make, well, first of all, they're middle school and high school age girls. And we are in a generation where beating your face, doing your makeup, eyelashes, all that stuff is like top rank. But everybody always thinks about the makeup artists. They think about the people wearing the makeup. They think about the companies that sell the makeup, but they never think about the career of making the makeup deciding what colors are beautiful, what combinations look well. Those are things that the scientist does. Figuring out what products and what to use to best apply them, that is the science behind it. Yeah. And I wanted the girls to see like, oh, I can use my brain and do fabulous things. And that's fabulous with a capital F, you know? <laughs> Like, I, they, I, they want, I wanted them to see that and, see, and like be able to draw a direct line. And so we had to start by, by let them to make anything they could think of. So we would come in and we would have an idea. So this week we're making lip gloss. What is something y'all would be interested in making? We want to make eyeshadows. So we would go out and we would do the research. Then we would make them, we would come back with all of these different materials, but they couldn't use any of them until they did the research about every material, why they were using it, how much did they need to use. Everybody had to come up with a recipe. Then they would do their, they would make their eyeshadow or they made bath bombs because, you know, everybody's into those bath bombs and all of these different things. We would just work through every week. Somebody has some, I want to make soap. So we had to go out and figure out how to make soap and what do we need to make soap and what materials do we need? And then for the second semester, they had to pick three things that they loved making before, design their own recipes, 
come up with a name for their product line. So everybody's product line had a name. They had to come up with a logo. And we had a graphic designer come in and talk to them about like making a logo and all of that. And then they had to actually make their products and they had to write out a budget. So they only got this amount of money. How much product can they make with this amount of money? And how did they design a recipe that would allow them to maximize on their product and all, all of these things? Yeah, and, and although a lot of what you're saying sounds like the entrepreneur side of it, as we were talking about earlier, these are all jobs that a chemist has to do. These yeah. are not just business decisions. Uh, someone who is a chemist or who is, you know, making the cosmetics has to consider all of these things. As working scientists, we're always worried about where we buy our products from. How much is it going to cost us? How many times can we replicate this experiment based on the kits that we buy? Like all of these little things are major factors in how we do good science. And the same goes for them. And they had to learn all of these things. Yeah. And, and, and you look at something like cosmetics and so much science goes into cosmetics. This is not like, you know, uh, uh, all these makeup companies, they don't just like, oh, yeah, we'll throw this, 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 and this in, and we'll call it a day, and we'll sell it. It is not that easy. So you you take something like the, the bath bomb, which I think is real fun, because if anything, that's kind of a modern-day volcano experiment, isn't it? And that's what they learned. That's what they learned. So, yeah, because you have this reaction of two compounds that one they once they get wet and they combine together... They fizz, very mm -hmm. similar to the, the volcano. Yep. So you can take that, you know, that, that quintessential volcano experiment, you know, the one that everyone loves and the one that, you know, most people have done at least once in their life and say like, okay, great, too bad. I don't have a volcano in my backyard. There's not a volcano in the community center. I can't get my access to a volcano. But here's something that's tangible. And this tangible thing is the bath bomb. And that's why I think that this is the coolest thing like I've ever heard of. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by it. And so you also said, uh, what, are the, what are the products you made? You said you did bath bomb, soap, uh, eyeliner, or not I eyeliner. Shadow, both of yeah. them. Eyeshadow, lip gloss, lotion. You can, you can make these things from like grocery store ingredients? No way body butters wow and then and then you got you got lip products you got face products you got skin products everything that's crazy i always just assume you had to buy it so that's on my end like i don't know <laughs> yeah there are a lot of things that i i do not buy anymore since we did that activity. oh yeah so so now I'm, I'm curious how has that like eked into your personal life do you make any of your own cosmetics now well i make my own body butters and okay. my own now so we don't buy them anymore that's really the only thing i really make like regularly but mm -hmm. if i wanted to make conditioner i can make my own conditioner i can make my uh, own gloss like just whip it up yeah, yeah right i mean save some money making your own products i love it and then you're really good at control and play with like the flavors and the scents mm -hmm. uh, and all of that kind of stuff that's super cool. And, and you're giving these kids the ability to do that themselves when they go home. Because yep. it's not like you're saying, ah, here's bottle X, put a little bit of X in there. You're telling them, this is what it is. You need this item to do this. And this is the ingredients list and how much needs to go in there. 
Well, actually, I'm telling them, this is what you want to make. Now, you need to help me figure out what goes in there. Now that we've figured out what goes in there, now we need to figure out how much of that. So we made lip gloss for three days because every recipe, the first couple recipes, some of them got really goopy. Some of them mm -hmm. were too hard. Like we trial and error. So it didn't work. We had to go back to the drawing board. They would do a recipe. They wouldn't like it. They would bring in a recipe they thought would work better. We would try that. Like it was a some days I can't left and this eye would be blue from ice cream we try to make. This eye would be yellow. My forehead would be purple. I, we made face masks like the clay mask one time. And one time we made the, ma the the recipe too thick and I couldn't get it off before it was time to go home. So I was driving down the street with like a raccoon face where I could only get it like from around my eyes. I had to come and scrub with like soap to get it off. Like <laughs> it's, 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 it, it sounds pretty, but most of it is a disaster until we get it. That is amazing. I I am absolutely in love with this. This is the coolest thing ever. Uh, and, and it's that process that I think is one of the things that needs to be highlighted. Is that um, especially when trying to teach kids science, it's a process. So do you have any uh, advice out there for that? You know, the first time you do, it's going to be a big failure. How do you inspire someone to want to continue trying? I tell them that I get it wrong more than I ever get it right. <laughs> True. I, 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 as a real scientist, I'm always telling them, listen, no babies will die. If we don't get it right this first time, we just going to try again. It's real simple. In my classroom, there's no right or wrong. In my classroom, you don't have to raise your hand. If you have an idea, you get excited, you just blurt it out. I'm an excited person. I can take it. When I'm excited, I hate to have to wait for somebody to tell me. I can tell them why I'm excited. Just tell me. So we're going to talk it through. We're going to get excited. Sometimes it ain't going to work. And when it don't work, I'm going to be like, man, what you think happened? What do you think went wrong? How do you think we can fix it? We're going to talk through the steps, go back and they have, they have lab notebooks. So they have to write down every single thing they do. We go back through the notebook. Well, you added two grams of this. Do you think you should add two grams of this? It looks like it made it hard. Maybe you should only add one gram of this. Who knows? Yeah, and you are, you're describing the scientific process right there. It is that, that repeat, adjust, repeat, adjust, repeat, adjust, repeat until you get it right and every time you learning a little bit more so it's not just a matter of oh i added one gram of this and it didn't work and then i added five grams of this and it did work it's learning that well one gram gave me this result five grams gives me this result can i say that increasing the amount gave me the result i wanted it to and that's a tough thing to learn. Honestly, I am in my program right now, and that is tough for me to learn as well. I want to change all the variables all at once, and I don't want to be patient enough to change one ingredient at one time. I'm a, I'm a tortoise, not a hare. <laughs> I don't mind. I will go one step at a time versus, because once things feel too convoluted, I just feel like in the weeds, and I hate that in the weeds feeling. Does yeah. Just let me walk it out. It's all right. I'll get there. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and that's a tough thing is to like, you know, take a deep breath, slow down, say like, all right. This generation really, because they got instant everything. So yeah. they want instant science too. I'm like, I can't instantly do that. I'm not that magic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like you are the magician, but the magician still needs to learn how to do it before they can do it. 
Exactly. So we have to go backwards a little bit. And there's yeah. clips that a lot of times I don't even know what's going to happen. Like sometimes I'll test the activity. Sometimes I'm like, we just go see what happens when we get there. <laughs> and yeah, that's we'll what happens when we get there. Because it's easier if we all learning together versus if I'm like, oh, you're doing it. You, I know you're going to do that. And then it's going to be wrong. And I have to think about it. So forget it. I don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to figure it out. Yeah, that that is a really another really good part is that kind of that fear of failure is going to exist no matter who's doing it. Even someone who is such a good scientist as you are still goes into a project thinking, huh, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we can learn from it. And that's the big thing is that you're learning from every time you're trying. Yeah. That's plain simple. It's what critical thinking is all about. You know, being able to readjust your mind, not get so caught up in what it should be. Because yeah. a lot of times we don't really know what it should be. Most scientific inventions started off as a completely different idea. Yeah. And it just made itself work. Exactly. Wow. That's beautiful. So then uh, to wrap things up, can you tell us, uh, one, what the most rewarding aspect of what you do is, and then also what the most challenging aspect of what you do? Um, the most rewarding aspect of what I do is, is that one day I'm going to like be a PI and have my own lab. And these little minds are going to be matriculating into that space and I'll get to see them again and maybe even possibly mentor them again and influence them again and fill those seats at these tables that I get to sit at now. I get to sit at these tables, but it's still kind of lonely. And possibly I'm generating the next generation of people going to sit beside me. That's you are. No, you, you are creating the people that are going to be sitting at the table with you. Like, that is what you're doing. It's not possible. You are doing it right now, and that's amazing. I think that the most frustrating part, but I'm starting to see change, is, like, the scientific community's attitude towards outreach. Really? Over time, it's grown, and there's become, a more, in there's become more interest, but... I've been doing this a long time and the attitude towards outreach hasn't always been the, been the most positive. And scientists haven't always understood why this work was just as important as my science work and how this was just as valuable to the community as the work I do in the lab and how they should go together and they should inspire each other. There's no reason that I'm creating these amazing discoveries in the lab, but I haven't figured out how to communicate this to a fourth grader who would think that's cool. Because when they get older, they're a lot harder to impress. But I can go tell a fourth grader that I study eyeballs and their minds are blown, you know? So I'm not gonna pass that up. I mean, I need to pump my ego too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's some crazy stuff. If you handed an adult a vial of cabbage juice and said, go make some household cleaners and see what happens, that's like, okay, great. But you give that to a child and you are opening up this this Pandora's box of excitement. One semester, we dissected an eyeball from every animal I could possibly get Scientific Carolina to mail me. So if they would <laughs> show me the eyeball, we dissected it. Every every eyeball I could get my hands on. So that's crazy. I've never like even done anything like that before. That's crazy. So so how did they react to the eyeball dissecting? Did they love it? They love the eyeballs. I would bring the little listy and I'd be like, these are the ones Scientific Carolina said I can get mailed to my house. Pick. And they were like, pick. <laughs> 
and then I would go and buy and then I would bring the eyeballs back and we would like I would make little schematics and they would have to like dissect them and we build our own little microscopes that they can turn their phones into microscopes and they would look at it under the microscope they would have I had like a portable dissecting scope they would look at it connected to the computer they loved it they talked me into buying sheep brains. They talked me into buying cow hearts. Like that is crazy. And they just was like so excited to you know dissect stuff. I was like, well, if you want to dissect it, and they'll mail it. Like they wouldn't mail me a shark, but like they would mail me a lot of other things. I did try to get them to mail me a shark. They would. So no sharks. <laughs> so they were like, they were like, you have to get this sent to a facility. I was like, oh, my house. But you like sheep brains off on my porch, but I can't get a shark. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's 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 the amount of animal parts you can get shipped to your doorstep <laughs> are the acceptable ones. And you you had you said sheep brains, you got cow heart, you got eyeballs. What's uh what is the what would you say is the strangest thing that they wanted to dissect? I would say the cow eye was the strangest thing because we had already dissected like dog eye, sheep eye, pig eye. And I was like, y'all not done with eyeballs? And the cat eye was so big and it was so exciting and it was so mushy, gushy. It <laughs> was and by the time they got to the cow eye, they didn't even need my instruction. They just was like diving in and it was like They knew what to do. You gave them those tools to do that. Yeah. It was interesting. And and kids love destroying things. They do. They are just sickly curious at how things work. Yes. yes. Gosh, that is the coolest thing ever. Oh, my God. Uh, so I want to thank you so much for talking about Nerd Squad with me. I think this is uh, the, the coolest possible uh, way to get science out into the community. And I will put up links and everything on the archive pages so that if anyone wants to look up and find out what it's about, uh, it'll be easy to access. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Now that you listened to our conversation with Cagney, maybe you'll try your hand at making some of your own beauty products. And if you fail a bunch of times, that's okay. Just give them to your family members and loved ones because they're contractually obligated to tell you that they enjoyed it. But the moral of the story today wasn't lip gloss. It was about the great work that community organizers like Cagney are doing in order to get people interested in science, and specifically within our own community. It's tradition on We Know Some Stuff to do a fact check at the end of the episode, but we didn't really have facts to check this episode. So instead, we thought maybe it'd be interesting to explore really what a bath bomb is and why that is the modern-day volcano experiment. The volcano experiment starts with an acid and a base. Those are basically as opposite as things get in the chemistry world. When you mix them together, they combine and they create a lot of gas. This is carbon dioxide that they create. And because there's a, maybe some dish soap in the volcano or something, it causes a lot of bubbling, a lot of gas, and then that liquid comes out the top of the volcano and we all have a good time. Our base, in this case, is going to be baking soda, and our acid is vinegar. So when you have the baking soda at the base of the volcano, you have the vinegar, it makes our reaction. Well, a bath bomb is actually incredibly similar too. Now, you're not going to be adding a bath bomb, which would be made out of baking soda, into a pool of vinegar unless you take vinegar baths. But the acid in the bath bomb is actually in a crystalline structure, so it's in a powder. So it's really not active until you wet it. 
once you wet that crystallized acid, it it combines with the baking soda component and makes all those bubbles and the scents and the aromas and the sparkles and I don't even know what they're doing with bath bombs these days. So if you find yourself wanting to inspire a young scientist, maybe a, a child or a cousin or someone you're babysitting, consider making bath bombs. It could be a fun activity to really get down to the basics of what it means to be a chemist. And if that conversation was at all inspiring, check out Nerd Squad on Facebook or Twitter under the handle Nerd Squad Inc. And while you do your self-care rituals tonight, think about the person that inspired you. Whether it was a scientist, a historian, or a trade person, someone that got you interested in what you do today. I'm certainly grateful for people like Acne, and I'm also grateful that you listened to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.